Blog Talk Radio. Sylvia, host of SylviaGlobal.com Radio. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm especially excited about the guest that we have um, for you to hear from today. His name is Dr. Reverend Ken Fong, and he is the senior pastor at Evergreen Baptist Church, Los Angeles. Um, Evergreen, Ken, under Pastor Fong's leadership, Evergreen LA has um, acquired quite a unique and exemplary um position as a multi-Asian, multi-ethnic, and multi-generational American Baptist church. I know the history and the the importance of this church because that's where we started many years ago, over 30 years ago. Hi, Ken. How you doing, Gail? It's so nice to be reconnected with you. How are you? Um, how is the family? Uh, family is great. Um, uh, we uh, now are officially parents of... Uh, a teenager, and so uh, we're entering a whole new phase of trying not to uh, strangle her before she uh, leaves the nest. Um, there's power in united prayer, so we will collectively surround you and Snoopy with our love and our prayer support, <laughs> and her as well. It's not easy um, being a teenager. Oh, no, I mean I'm 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 exaggerating right, right now. This is this funny. is early. Yeah, she's a great kid. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to um, meeting her. It's been we've been gone a long time, and so. Um, this opportunity to collect to connect on Sylvia Global has re, is a direct result of the Small Business Administration and the Los Angeles District Office. They are aware of the work that you've been doing at Evergreen Baptist Church Los Angeles for many years, and there's a 2013 faith-based summit that the SBA faith-based department is supporting, and they wanted to make sure that Sylvia Global um, connected with Dr. Reverend Ken Fong. So here we are. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so t- talk to us about, you know, how your vision for, you know, ever. You know, I know before I go to that question, talk to us about the diversity at Evergreen and how that has evolved through the years. Because historically, it was a Japanese American church, correct? Yeah, actually, even further back, it was founded as a uh, mission church to Japanese-speaking immigrants from Japan who lived in the East L.A. Boyle Heights uh, community back then. So the original pastors were actually imported from Japan. Um, I, th- I I kind of like uh, liken our evolution as a church, that was 1925, to uh, kind of the analogy of a restaurant. So you know, this church was originally founded as a little hole-in-the-wall, mom-and-pop Japanese cafe. And, uh, you know, if you wandered in back in those early days and you expected tacos or a hamburger, uh, number one, uh, you couldn't read the menu. It was all in Japanese. Everyone else in the you know restaurant was Japanese. And all they served was Japanese food. Um, but those uh, original, uh, you know, restaurateurs and their patrons, they had kids. And eventually the kids got tired of eating just Japanese food. So even though it was only Japanese, there was now first and second generation Japanese coming to the restaurant. So they started adding a little egg foo young and some other things. Uh, 
but over the years, uh, the Chinese started coming in greater numbers, I'd say in the 1970s when Pastor Corey uh, was called to be the pastor. And um, what happened was the church after World War II became only English-speaking. And so really the, the original kind of patrons to the restaurant uh, soon found that this wasn't necessarily their kind of restaurant anymore. But uh, the Jap second-generation Japanese and the Chinese really started kind of putting together this pan-Asian, although in those days it was just Chinese-Japanese. So they called me uh, as uh, the associate pastor as a way to really say, we're adding another cook to the, to the staff who uh, isn't a Japanese person who cooks Chinese food. It's actually a Chinese person who cooks Chinese food not that well and, and American food. And, and so pretty much through the 80s, uh, with the rise of the church growth movement, uh, we were pretty convinced that we had identified our own demographic of English-speaking Chinese and Japanese, and that was it. But um, God got a hold of me in 1990. Uh, I went to this uh, Urbana Student Missions Conference uh, that was held uh, in uh, Champaign-Urbana, and I heard about a God I didn't know, uh, and a, out of a gospel that was about racial reconciliation and justice, that I hadn't been preaching. And I just came back really convicted that uh, even though it might make a lot of sociological sense just to major on Chinese and Japanese people, that we needed to major on bigger things like the kingdom of God and racial reconciliation. And so um, that's what we started doing. And today we have probably a dozen different Pacific Rim people here. Uh, we have Indian, we have Middle Eastern, we have Black, we have Hispanic, we have Caucasian, um, and we have mixes. And uh, the surprising thing to me, Gail, is that the, there's still a robust percentage of our congregation that's first generation, but they're more recent first generation. So it's very interesting. Why is it surprising to you? Because there are so many first generation churches that speak their native languages that they can just go to, and you know most most first generation people do, regardless of their countries of origin. So so I've taken to asking some of these first generation folks. So you know we love that you're here, um, but what makes you come? And um, the, the two basic answers I get are one is well our kids now are teenagers, and they're hating going to church because it just seems like going to this immigrant experience. Even if there's an English-speaking contingent, and um, we don't want to see our kids stop coming to church, then they do a very Asian parent thing. They say, "Well, we'll sacrifice for the benefit of our kids, so we'll leave the churches where we're leaders, where we're known, and we'll come to a church that our kids enjoy, and we'll be nobody." But then some of the people who are coming, Gail, are actually—they're not married, they don't have kids, um, they're singles, and they say, "So what brings you here?" And they said, "Well," God has me at this place in my faith journey where I'm now increasingly uncomfortable with being so comfortable. That I, I believe that heaven's going to be incredibly multi-ethnic and multicultural. And so I, I'm choosing, based on where I see myself now in my, my walk with Christ, I'm choosing to actually be in a place where it stretches me to see beyond what's comfortable to see brothers and sisters that I'm looking forward to spending eternity with. What a, a perfect place for it to begin within the church. 
because, you know, it doesn't always happen that way. Um, I read statistics. I, I can't quote the exact number right now, but I read some statistics of several years ago that the most segregated places in our community are churches on Sunday and prisons oh, and the prison yeah. system. And, yeah, boy, what, um, a, what a great uh, comparison, huh? It really is. And I think that, you know, I don't know, I never did any research, but you and I arrived at Evergreen East L.A., you know, during the 80s uh, when our son and um, niece were, gosh, they were were infants. You know, that's where we met other families in the infant unit, and now they're in their 30s, you know. So it may be safe to say that we were probably one of the first African-American families at Evergreen Baptist Church. And you were. Yeah, and in leadership, and the reason we felt so at home there was because we have so much more in common that than meets the eye. And yeah. I can't help but wonder if that's what gets lost on church members, and because the church are us individually as Christians, you know, gathered together um, for the same mission and purpose of worshiping Christ. But if we don't forget to look at what we have in common instead of always looking at what we have as differences and actually feeling embraced and welcome to be different um, in a congregation that was primarily, you know, Asian-American and to feel so at home because we were loved and are loved and um, unconditionally based on what we have in common. And to start, to have a church experience like that, gives us the freedom and the confidence to put ourselves in uncomfortable environments outside of Sunday morning, Hmm. you know, because we want to experience more of God's love, more of God's presence in our life. And when you have a great church experience and a great church home where that being different is a part of how you're loved because that's what we have in common, um, there is a strength and a wisdom and an ability to move forward, um, even in the absence of the fellowship, which has been our case for many years, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I think, yeah, you and your family were definitely pioneers as far as being the first African-American family that was part of our church. I think, you know, going back to my restaurant analogy, back in those days, um, your family probably still felt like you were at a you know, a Chinese-Japanese restaurant that was nice to African-American people. Um, what what I think we're morphing to is we're uh, a fusion restaurant where we certainly have roots being a Japanese restaurant. Um, but now whoever comes, uh, and not just based on ethnicity, uh, but even like people with special needs, um, you know, that, that sort of thing, whoever comes, you contribute what ingredients you bring from your your own life experience, your own cultural background, so that it begins to affect the things on the menu, right? So, so you know, but I, I kind of half jokingly tell people. So, if you order a taco now, I mean, we definitely have all kinds of tacos on the uh, on the menu. I said, but if you look closely at the ingredients of your taco, there's probably a little azuki bean or tofu in there, <laughs> exactly because right. yeah, it's it's the, the main cooks are still Asian, but we've got fried chicken, we've got French dip sandwiches, and we've got things that have never existed before. I think the thing that's really stimulating us is Ephesians two and the whole idea of what was the point of Jesus dying to destroy the dividing walls uh, between us. 
it wasn't just that he did that. He did it for a purpose, and the purpose was to create one new humanity out of himself. And so we're saying it's not enough for us to just kind of be nice to each other and tolerate each other. How do we contribute? And I think this is going back to the body model. How do we contribute what we bring, whatever it is, as something that's necessary to make the body whole, to actually give an example to the rest of the world, to the rest of society, of a new humanity that's possible with all the differences, all the diversity, but one, right? Which I think takes us back to the beginning, pre-fall, is what God had done from the very beginning in making the the human race. So local churches, however imperfectly or incrementally, should be living embodiments of the work of Christ in making that new humanity. What prevents church churches and church leaders from moving outside their own comfort zones when it comes to multi-ethnic, multi-generational, and you know, just basically to a diversity model? Well, I, I think it's a great question. I think it gets at the heart of it. Uh, certainly, um, looking back at my own transformation, Gail, um, there was definitely a strong uh, belief to major in the familiar and to replicate uh, that what I that which I already valued and and believed needed to you know uh, go forward. So I mean, in those days, if you would have asked me, uh, how can you justify just majoring on Chinese, Japanese, English speaking people uh, when there's so many other people in the world and just in the LA region? And I would you know what I would say was, without blinking an eye, well that's because we can't reach everybody equally well and. So far, we're Chinese and Japanese, English-speaking people, and there's all these people of that demographic that haven't been reached uh, for Christ. And so you wouldn't you wouldn't harass a missionary who goes to Japan and only wants to reach out to the Japanese natives, even though there's other people living in Japan, would you? Well, right. That's how I would. That's how I would think. So there's there's a part of it that I think is still focused on. The, and I think it's legitimate to focus on the group that you represent that still need Christ. Um, but I, I also think that what doesn't get said is some of the fears underneath that, that if we start reaching outside of this circle, how is it going to diminish? How might it dilute, number one, that primary outreach work that we want to do, but even more than that, how might it diminish and dilute the culture that we that we feel most comfortable with? Is that going to make us so change that I'm at some point I might not even feel comfortable coming to this church, right? And I I, I kind of half seriously, half jokingly have told our congregation over the years, any church where you're 100% comfortable is there. That means someone else is not comfortable. So why do we keep making being comfortable on earth the primary uh, definer of what our church experience is going to be? I said, when we get to heaven, we're going to be comfortable for all eternity. So being uncomfortable now you know, on earth is the point because we're, we're rehearsing how to be comfortable for what's coming. Okay, so where does... The, I'm not going to say the theory exclusively, but where does 
what you just said about uncom- being uncomfortable now for prep- as preparation for being comfortable in eternity, how does that intersect with some of the harsh realities and experiences of life that cause us to sometimes say, you know what, I just want to go to church so that I can be comfortable on that day and safe in that place because the rest of life is throwing so much at me and I'm uncomfortable the other six days. You know? Yeah, where- no, I mean, that's, that, that, that uh, is an incredibly challenging question. Uh, I think especially for people who experience oppression and repression and prejudice and uh, they don't get uh, seen as leaders in the wider society in their you know day to day experience. Um, coming to a church on Sunday where you can uh, speak freely, you can you know eat all the food that you love. You're seen as a, a leader, whether you have the educational pedigree that you know society says you need to have. I mean that's awesome. I I I, I think that there's for for that reason alone, there's a lot of folks, most folks. Uh, flock to churches that that really give them that experience. The 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 there's a downside to everything though, right? And so in the midst of celebrating this this um, oasis, if you will, uh, this sanctuary that gives me refuge uh, from all the other stuff that uh, is, is makes life so hard. Um, at some point, we may miss uh, like how being so comfortable is truncating uh the 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 body uh the body's own diversity is truncating our own uh, sensitivity to other people in life when i've talked to like first generation language asian churches about this uh, idea i mean one of the pushbacks they'll say is well i mean how how in the world can we reach out to the puerto ricans that are in our community because we don't speak spanish and uh i would say okay so let's I have two things to say to that. Number one, um, learning a whole different language, that's hard. But I said, right now, my sneaking suspicion is you're hiding your prejudice against Puerto Ricans behind your language limitation. And if Puerto Ricans never come to your church, Jesus still wants you to learn to love your neighbor and to quit thinking such stereotypic thoughts about them. But I said, let's let's not talk about the Puerto Ricans for a second. Let's talk about the Asian people who speak the same language dialect that you do, but they are restaurant workers or they're garment factory workers. And the only people that come to your church right now are the ones with the decals on the back of their windows of prestigious universities, right? And so doesn't Jesus love those people? There's not a language problem there. There's a socioeconomic problem. But what are you missing about Jesus because you're not, well, reaching out to them? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it not only makes sense, but I, it, it prompts another question. I, I I would imagine there have been moments where you're just absolutely ticking some people off. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, because, I guess. You know, because you're you're really putting people in probably the most uncomfortable place any of us could be individually and collectively, and that's where we have to question our own motivations and the authenticity of our walk as Christians. Right. And that's not always fun or well received. How have you what are some circumstances 
that you've experienced along that line, and how have you grown and worked through that? How has the Lord helped you to 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 maneuver that? <laughs> well, back maybe 20 years ago, when I first started sounding like this, uh, clearly not as as delineated as I am now. I remember uh, I was uh, speaking to a Chinese American group, and there was a Chinese immigrant group that was meeting parallel to us, and so they invited me to come over with a translator. I call them interrupters, not interpreters, uh, to to speak to the Chinese speaking group about the future. And so basically what I said is, uh, I'm third generation. My grandfather came to this country in the 1800s. Uh, I know most of you came you know, in the 1970s, 1980s. So when you see me, though, you're, God's giving you a glimpse of the future. This is what your children and your grandchildren are going to be like. And so... You know, if you're using your church to just preserve immigrant culture, you're basically going to lose your, your your kids potentially for eternity because they're going to associate so much going to church with being an immigrant. And and so you you can't just have church be comfortable for you as an immigrant. You you have to look ahead, right? And I remember this uh, Chinese speaking pastor stood up and he just went off in in Cantonese at me. Fortunately, I can't understand it, so. The interpreter said, basically, if I would sum up, <laughs> that's my shield, right? Huh? I know you're mad, but I don't know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Basically, he's saying, how dare you? You're yeah. not a prophet from God. Yeah. You can't say that you know the future, right? And, you know, in, a, in as kind a way as I could, I said back to him, I'm not claiming to be a prophet. I don't have to be. I'm a byproduct of the same process that you and your your progeny are involved in. People come to America with different dreams. They don't fully and accurately anticipate the consequences that's going to happen to their, you know, succeeding generations. But I'm one of those succeeding generations. I don't speak Chinese. I married a Japanese American. Um, you know, I eat American food more than I eat Chinese food. I didn't learn how to use chopsticks until I was in high school. I'm just telling you, this is happening at a, at an increasingly rapid pace. And so, that's that's just sociology. Right, and so that was back in those days, and uh, you know because I didn't have to come back to a a, a church that was that situation, I could kind of take and leave whatever whatever people were saying. These days, I've gotten much wiser about how to talk about it, and I frame it uh, what I call more hermeneutically. And I don't know if you know your audience understands that term, but hermeneutics is, is basically the fancy seminary term for how we interpret the Bible, and. Uh, so I just tell people today, we're using the wrong hermeneutic. When we read the Bible, we're putting on the wrong glasses, most of us. I said most of us wear what I call a static hermeneutic. And that is that when we read the the Bible, we we actually say, all right, so the Bible is talking about all of human history is going to come to this grand climax. And in that climax, in the twinkling of an eye, Everything that separates us is going to disappear, and we're all going to be together as one family in Christ, and we're all going to love it, and we're going to love each other, and we're all looking forward to that. I said, okay, so that's 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 how we look at the end. But the static glasses say, but right now we start as a black church, or we start as a Chinese church, or a white church. And between now and when that moment happens where everything comes to a climax – Everything stays static. We stay the way we started. And and I said, that's the evidence I see in most churches. That's how I grew up. 
I said, but the right glasses, the right hermeneutic, I'm convinced now, is a redemptive hermeneutic. It says, you still start where you start. We don't have an option but to start where we start, wherever we start. But we do not intend to stay where we start until the end happens. We move, however incrementally, but supernaturally inspired and fueled. As, as we get closer to that climax, we begin to look more and more like what the end's going to look. And I said, now this redemptive hermeneutic is especially essential for people who right now, the, the status quo really sucks. Like, I'm, I'm a slave right now. I'm left out of the party. I'm completely written out of the picture. And so if you're telling me, and let's use a slave example, hey, you know what, right now you're a slave, uh, gee, that's, that's really terrible. But good news, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be a slave. It's like that's not good news on earth. And so, so it's like, well, the church needs to be the one place on earth where you can see how where we start isn't where we're going to finish. And so um, as I now use this hermeneutical sort of rubric, uh, when I go out and I talk to different groups, I get much less pushback, Gail, because they know theologically I'm, I'm right. So they know it theologically that you're right, but are they implementing it in their own lives and congregations? Do you see an increase of that? I, I Well, <laughs> I think the uh, first thing that has to happen is they have to be messed up where they are. Uh, they have to see that it is broke, so it needs fixing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's even though that looks like not doing anything, that's that's I think that the being sufficiently disturbed with the status quo is really where you have to start. And I have seen various groups, you know, at various uh, paces, uh, take that disturbance and start to do something different with it. I think it's much tougher when when it's a long established historic congregation, but a lot of the uh, uh, the people uh, in seminary and recently out of seminary, the churches that they're planting are much more redemptive in their hermeneutic, mm-hmm. uh, and not just ethnically, but socioeconomically. I mm-hmm. see um, people, uh, bright and gifted uh, young pastors, planting churches in like downtown Los Angeles, not just to reach the loft dwellers, but also reach the homeless uh, people. And so that, that to me is very stimulating. How does the example that you gave about speaking to the Chinese church with the interrupter or the interpreter, you know, many years ago, how is that message today? You know, what what is the, the generational change that's a projection for the future? This is a huge, huge issue and problem for um, especially the Chinese and the Korean, but I'm guessing also in the Southeast Asian uh, congregations because the rate of uh, acculturation, if not assimilation, uh, between the first and the second generation alone has has jumped up dramatically. In other words... Uh, people that are second generation who 40 years ago would still be quite fluent in their parents' uh, language uh, and and still quite comfortable going back and forth between the kind of more greater society and the immigrant Asian society, they are now fitting less and less comfortably in the immigrant society. 
their their circle of friends, their choices for marriage partners. Um, and so for the churches who are basically still pastored by immigrants and led by immigrants, uh, adults, they are losing their next generation in droves. And they see this. They, 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 uh, I think they can't ignore it. But their solution is to, it seems like many of them, to double down even harder on pushing first-generation things. You know, I just witnessed something that reflects what you just said yesterday. I witnessed a friend of mine who's first-generation Vietnamese speaking to her daughter, who was 12, in Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And the daughter absolutely refused to speak back in Vietnamese. She only responded in English, even though everyone else in the room, with the exception of just two of us, were all Vietnamese speaking. Right. And I didn't know, and I didn't ask. It wasn't appropriate under the circumstances, but it was a really interesting dynamic because there was also another, um, I think she's probably about 17, 18-year-old Vietnamese um, young lady that was there who also understood speaks both languages fluently, uh, would respond in Vietnamese, but tended to answer the little girl, um, the younger girl, in English. You know, I think in, in what I was observing uh, in relationship to what you just said, I think is also a reflection of what the experience and real-life experience is within the communities of, you know, immigrants and within the churches. Of right. the immigrant population. Yeah, and it, and it goes beyond uh, what we hear. It goes beyond the language. Yeah. It gets into yeah. Yeah. a worldview, right, yeah. or worldviews. It attitude. gets into paradigm difference. It gets yeah. into um, how the parents uh, view life and faith and how the children view life and faith. Yeah. And it's, it's not good and bad, right. but it's different. And I talk to enough of the young people, when they become young adults especially, that as much as they love their, their parents, as much as they love their family and, and all of that, um, they're feeling increasingly disenfranchised, and they, they're not getting help from the church, mm. right? And so the churches are, you know, I understand this. I'm a father. I, I, I get desperate when I think uh, if my daughter one day doesn't want to come to the church where I go, right? Uh, but so I can understand how as just at the basic level of a family, uh, if you're the parents, you freak out when you see your kids, they don't want to come to your church anymore, right? And so the, the kind of response that most immigrant Asian churches are doing is they're hiring an English-speaking uh, youth worker. Yes. And they say, okay, so your number one job is to make sure that our kids don't leave the church. But when you talk to those youth workers, they're so frustrated because whatever adaptations they're trying to make culturally to, to relate to the kids, the overarching culture of the church is still first generation, and it shoots down all the all the uh, creative things, all the you know the changes that they're trying to do. So they're basically hired to do an impossible job because the the surrounding culture doesn't really embrace the changes that are necessary to do the job. So so the kids leave anyway, and then they get fired. Hmm. Kent, I am so sorry that we are running out of time, but I, I don't want to close without giving you an opportunity to answer one last question. Sure. Um, and I hope that you'll be open to coming back on Sylvia Global again soon and continuing these discussions. Uh, 
the question is, you know, I was introduced to you for the purposes of this conversation through the Los Angeles District Office of the SBA, the Small Business Administration, and through Tri-City CDC and the Inland Empire. What is Evergreen doing and what is your vision in terms of supporting or whatever the needs may be, um, if they've been identified, members of your congregation that are entrepreneurs? Yeah, that would be a great conversation to go into further at another time. But, yeah, we have quite a number of uh, self-made you know, business people. And uh, in particular, some of them have seen their companies grow uh, so fast that it's kind of outgrown their vision, originally vision, their original vision, and it's outgrown their current understanding of how to lead this group. And so they've seen how I have been uh, enabled by God's grace to lead this church through a lot of uh, growth transitions. And so they're coming to me to be mentored. And uh, we're, we're about to launch uh, a mentoring group. going to have eight uh, men and women. Not all of them are small business people, but uh, some of them definitely are, and this is why they're coming and we're going to be working through some material on developing uh, the leadership that uh, is captured in Robert Quinn's book, Deep Change. And so uh, it's all about confronting your own cowardice and the need uh, to, to get off the stick and to risk in the direction of a more compelling vision. A lot of stuff you know we've just talked about, uh, I think it has direct application for people's own growth of their own businesses. Dr. Reverend Ken Fong. Senior Pastor at Evergreen Baptist Church, Los Angeles. Thank you so much for being here on Sylvia Global today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's just really quite a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you at church on Sunday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in the future, we're back in California. Um, this broadcast can be heard on iTunes as a podcast under Sylvia Global and also on sylviaglobal.com radio. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and we'll look forward to having you back again, Ken. Thank you so, so much. All right. Have a wonderful day. Okay.